people who are back at theaters right now, they're loving film. And there's that vibe that I get in the auditoriums when I'm there. There's like, people are truly, you know, celebrating the thing that they we almost lost. And it's that cliche where you don't know what you got till it's gone. And that certainly kicked in for me. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, joined today by our box office analyst, Jesse Rifkin, and a bit later in the podcast with Box Office Pro's editorial director, Daniel Luria, here with our feature segment, an interview with Sean Baker, the director of A24's Red Rocket, exclusively in theaters this weekend. Hey, Jesse, how you doing? I'm doing great. I went to the movies not one, not two, but three times this weekend alone. So I'm all movied out, but happy to help the box office any way I can. So we are revving up right now into holiday season and award season. On the latter front, we are seeing what I can only imagine is part of an award season push, at least in part. We have special screenings for uh, West Side Story holding a special fan event screening on the 10th. And then yesterday, we also saw a special IMAX screening of uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Both of those presumed to be uh, major awards contenders. Uh, something that caught my eye that's interesting is that uh, there's going to be a special bit of programming with bringing The Matrix to IMAX for the first time. So I'm excited about that. I'm, I, we've spoken about that on the podcast before, Jesse, that... Uh, there's a lot of um, things that I would see from older films if they uh, if they got out on IMAX. Star Wars original trilogy, sign me up. Oh, uh, the, uh, the Room. Not sure about the Room, but you know what? For the novelty, I I would I would do it. I would do it. And then we actually have uh, have some promising news from the first and third largest uh, cinema circuits in North America, AMC and Cinemark reporting that Spider-Man No Way Home has driven the second biggest day of ticket sales for a single title in those circuits' history. So that film coming out on uh, Friday, December 17th, hopefully uh, really a, a little spark to kick off what we hope will be a very strong final few weeks of 2021 at the box office in North America. Not so strong, as always, as completely expected. The post-Thanksgiving week, pretty slow. Jesse, I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to explain to us what went down here, but um, I Encanto say I'm surprised that Disney's Encanto maintained its top spot at the box office in its second week. Encanto uh, repeated on top in its second frame with $12.7 million. That's down 53%. Now, Disney often releases movies on that Thanksgiving weekend. As far as the post-Thanksgiving weekend drop, Encanto came about middle of the pack, a steeper drop than Coco at minus 46% and Moana at minus 50%, about even with the original Frozen, also at minus 53%, and a milder post-Thanksgiving drop than Tangled at minus 56% and Frozen 2 at minus 59%. Now, Rebecca, Encanto isn't just leading the box office here in the U.S. It's also doing well overseas. Let's focus on Colombia for a moment. The movie takes place in that country, and it is now the sixth highest-grossing animated movie there of all time and the highest-grossing animated movie there during the pandemic. Now, I recently wrote a feature on the movie where I got to interview the film's producer, Clark Spencer, and I asked him, why did you set it in Colombia, especially when other recent Disney movies were set in fictional lands, like Kumandra for Raya and the Last Dragon or Manatui for Moana? 
He said that in their research about South America, they discovered that Colombia is really, as he put it, the crossroads of Latin America. The people are Spanish, the people are black, the people are indigenous. So it has all this diversity of races and diverse topography as, as well. So within one single country, you kind of get everything you want from Latin America and South America all right there in one nation. That's really interesting, Jesse. And, and uh, actually, if you go to boxofficepro.com, we have feature interviews with the directors and the creative crew behind a number of films that we're talking about on this week's podcast, including Encanto, Ghostbusters Afterlife, another film in this weekend's top 10, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, Flea, and Drive My Car. Ghostbusters Afterlife repeated in second place and House of Gucci repeated in third place, but the real other story in the top five is the fourth place film. It's called Christmas with the Chosen, The Messengers. Now, The Chosen is a, it's a television series that follows the life of Jesus. It has been two seasons and 16 total episodes so far. It streams on both the platforms Peacock and the show's own streaming app made just for the show. The app is also called The Chosen. So they made a, an hour, 50-minute special that actually plays more like a movie in, in running time than, a, than an episode of the show. Uh, this follows the story of, of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. In other words, the Christmas story we all know. It's given uh, 10 days of theatrical exclusivity from Wednesday, December 1st through Friday, December 10th, and it just became the best-selling event in Fathom Events history. It had a $4.1 million weekend, cracking the top five in fourth place. Yeah, and this was in the news a few weeks back when it hit uh, $1.5 million in pre-sales in its first 12 hours. Again, a record for Fathom. It was also in theaters on Wednesday and Thursday where it was the highest grossing film in general. You know, Jesse, something that, that interested me about this title is, as you noted, it kind of has its origin on a streaming platform. Uh, we've seen that with, with other films. I'm thinking of, uh, I believe, Spirit of the Cimarron, an animated children's title from earlier this year that was based on a Netflix series and then hit theaters. Um, there was a Boss Baby show on Netflix and then the Boss Baby sequel hit theaters. You know, we're seeing that kind of back and forth between those two. You know, streaming and theatrical don't necessarily have to be in competition with each other all the time. And both of those two examples you just mentioned were actually movie theaters to streaming back to movie theaters. So Spirit was originally an in-theaters movie all the way back in 2002. Then they turned it into a Netflix series and then they turned it into another movie again. Uh, a year or two ago. Boss Baby was a movie in theaters, then they turned it into a Netflix animated show, and then the sequel, Boss Baby Family Business, was released in theaters again. So it's very back and forth, back and forth. Well, and with Christmas with the Chosen, it starts as streaming. It has this great success with a limited event series release. I have to assume it will continue in streaming in some capacity. So, you know, these, these two modes of exhibition can really, you know, play off one another, can contribute to each other's success. Um, that, that, for me, is the story of Christmas with the Chosen, in addition to it breaking these records for Fathom for highest grossing and best attended. You know, something, Jesse, that we have spoken a lot about over the course of this podcast is the need for diversity in programming. Uh, Christmas with the Chosen, a faith-based title released by Fathom Events, um, it hitting so big certainly underscores the importance of having different types of titles geared towards different types of audiences. And actually, you know, we see that in our number 10 title uh, at the box office over this past weekend. Um, certainly didn't make as much money as Christmas with the Chosen did, but Jesse, we have another anime title that was released to theaters. And, you know, what's your assessment of that film's performance? Cracking the top 10 in 10th place is Sword Online Progressive, which is the title of a new movie from Funimation, the distributor behind recent successes as My Hero Academia and Demon Slayer. 
just barely topped a million dollars with $1.05 million on 840 screens. You know, Funimation has really had a lot of success releasing these anime titles in theaters to a, to a niche market. They're not going out full court press releasing these movies to a ton of theaters. They are targeting the audience that they know is there. And related to what we spoke about a few minutes ago, they know the audience is there because they are also a streaming platform and they are able to kind of dovetail those two things together to promote uh, their theatrical products and, and to know kind of what is going to be popular, what is going to have legs. Kind of on the other side of the equation, we do have a breakdown of some new specialty titles. I'm sad but not surprised necessarily to report that new release uh, Benedetta from IFC Films, directed by Paul Verhoeven, debuted in 202 theaters to only 145,000 for a per theater average of 718. You know, not what anyone hoped the film would make, certainly, but it's a, you know, it's a dark comedy about sexy nuns. So Paul Verhoeven's films tend to not have that uh, four-quadrant wide appeal, let's say. So I'm happy with this one uh, being the future cult classic that I, uh, I do believe it will be. Newly out from Neon and Participant Media was the animated documentary Flea, which debuted to $25,000 on four screens for a per screen average of 6,258. Pretty good per theater average there. And Focus Features Wolf, which was released on 308 screens to 80,000 in its opening weekend. We had some really good holdovers in the specialty market, uh, Jesse, from those films that are doing a more gradual rollout. Uh, what are we looking at for some of these? Licorice Pizza is a new movie from United Artists. It's considered one of the top award contenders and also sounds like a pretty good food menu item as well. It expanded to four locations in its second weekend, making about $223,000 for an excellent per theater average of more than $55,000. That is one of the top per theater averages of the entire year so far, right up there with the French Dispatch. It's great news. And then uh, we also have Drive My Car from Sideshow and Janice Films. Uh, that is Japan's entry for the Best Foreign Film Oscar of the Year. It went up from two theaters last weekend to four this weekend, bringing in 27,300. It is expanding to additional cities this upcoming weekend. And then uh, finally, we have Mike Mills's Come On, Come On, released by A24, which expanded to 565 screens in its third weekend, earning a weekend cum of 462,000 for a total so far of 1.4 million. So, um, you know, Jesse, it, it's certainly a, a gamble to release uh, a, a film in a very slow rollout when windows are shorter than they used to be. But we're seeing for some of these films, specifically like Licorice Pizza, it's, it's proven to be a, a really good move. And speaking of platform releases, specifically like Come On, Come On, an A24 platform release, uh, we turn to Daniel Luria for this week's feature segment, an interview with Sean Baker, whose Red Rocket hits theaters this Friday, December 10th. As we record, uh, you're actually going to be in France with some of our French colleagues. How you doing, Daniel? Good. It's a working vacation, a workcation, I guess you call them. It's better than a staycation, I can tell you that much. Daniel, I mean, this this time of year, I think probably uh, I, I would speak for both of us when I say it's, it's probably one of our favorite in terms of movie going. 
award season and just uh, not only coming to theaters, these these big spectacles um, like Spider-Man New Way Home, like Spielberg's West Side Story, but a lot of those smaller specialty awards contenders. Um, and I, you were lucky enough to speak with the director of one of your favorite of those films this year. That's right. And a regular podcast listener, uh, Sean Baker, the filmmaker behind Red Rocket coming out in theaters this Friday from A24. Rebecca, I was able to see this movie at the New York Film Festival earlier this year. Really liked it. Uh, We reached out to Sean's team to get him here on the podcast and speak not only about the movie, but about his thoughts as a filmmaker of specialty in arthouse movies on the importance of a theatrically exclusive release for movies like his. Now, we've heard it many times before that the big blockbusters are what drive audiences back to theaters. We've seen that. But as we've seen with titles like P.T. Anderson's Licorice Pizza, or we have also Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, movies that target specific audiences are doing quite well for these specialty and art house theaters. And Sean Baker's definitely the type of filmmaker whose work especially appeals to these type of cinemas. So, Daniel, I had a chance to uh, to read your interview with Sean in our Centennial issue. Some some great commentary uh, there from him on the intersection between the specialty market and theatrical. I don't think anybody listening <laughs> listening to this needs any context for why that's important, um, but context for the movie itself. Um, you know, Red Rocket, it, it's not a movie with any big stars. What are we looking at in terms of what's this movie? Uh, Red Rocket is a dark comedy. I think that's the easiest way to introduce it. It stars Simon Rex as a down-and-out adult film actor who ends up back in his hometown on the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, a small industrial town, and he's back there where he grew up sleeping on his estranged wife's couch, really trying to get back on his feet and back to Los Angeles by any means possible. He ends up dealing drugs for a bit and runs into uh, this high school employee, high school-aged employee, at the local donut shop. And through her, he sees his return ticket to Los Angeles and the porn industry. So it, it sounds a little bit out of left field. It is, it's a dark comedy. I think fans of uh, Sean Baker's prior movies will respond to this, a movie like a lot of his previous works with characters on the edges of a formal economy here in the United States. Movies like The Florida Project and Tangerine come to mind. This movie, Rebecca, was actually not originally intended to be Sean Baker's follow-up project since the critical hit of The Florida Project some years back. If we go back to February, March of 2020, Sean was actually heavy at work getting another project ready to shoot in Vancouver when the pandemic happened. As soon as it did, he pivoted, went back to the drawing board, found this project that he'd been planning for years and went forward with it right as the pandemic really started to go underway here in the United States, calling actor Simon Rex last minute to join him on set. A great story, and let me just dive right into it. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. I know this is a project that you had been planning for years. When exactly did the idea of Red Rocket come to mind? Almost 10 years ago. It was for a film I made before Tangerine called Starlet. And we just got to know people within the adult film world. They were actually, there were lots of cameos in Starlet uh, of adult film performers, both male and female. And it was just through meeting them that we we met this archetype. And I didn't even know it was like a, a real thing until I started meeting a handful of these guys. 
uh, these quote unquote suitcase pimps and realizing that there was actually even a slang term applied to them. And of course this is, this isn't applied to all male talents in the adult film world, but there are these dudes who do, you know, live off of the women in the adult film world and uh, take advantage of them. And, uh, and that's how they basically survive in that world. And I was um, just intrigued, intrigued because I saw uh, similar characteristics in all these guys. They, they basically thought the same way and their thought process I found to be extremely complex, problematic, uh, disturbing, and something I couldn't wrap my head around. Um, so I guess it was my desire to tackle a character like this and sort of put the audience in the same mindset that I was in while hanging out with them, which very quickly I'll just describe to you. I was entertained. I was laughing. I was having a fun time hanging out with these guys because on the surface level, they're entertaining and appealing and funny. Uh, but then what I was after a while, what they were saying would sink in and I would be very torn, very, um, yeah, it just not knowing how to handle what I just heard and, and questioning myself. Why am I laughing at this stuff? Why am I finding it entertaining? So I wanted to apply that to the audience and have them feel the same, very, the, the same way. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, there is a, a bit of a Lolita element to this story as you're telling the story of a suitcase pimp. Uh, yeah. So he's pursuing this underage high schooler. And that's where I think the, the comparison with Lolita is very interesting, because as a book, Lolita puts in a lot of effort, not to have you like its protagonist but or, or condone his actions, but to have you enjoy spending time with him, or at least you don't mind spending that time with Umber Umber in, uh, in the book. In a film, though, that work is down to the performance of your lead actor, who on paper, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible person, but the performance is what drives the movie and the audience's connection to the movie. You have to have a good time with him to an extent, right? Even if you don't agree with what he's doing. How, how did you get down to finding Simon Rex to play that lead role who's just magnetic in this movie? Well, I knew it would have to be somebody who has that charming appeal and also is funny because that's what these guys are on the surface level that's how they draw people in that's how they connect with people that's how they get what they want they're low level pimps so they have to have that persona so but but simon just being number one he's also he's a comedian and an actor so i knew he had the comedic chops and also i just i've been watching him for so long you know we're approximately the same age i know about all the, the peaks and valleys of his career and every time he came back into you know the spotlight i felt out for him I, because he was a survivor. I was like, this guy's he's going, he's going, he's going to keep doing it until the industry truly pays attention. And I was always baffled by why the industry didn't give him more meaty roles, more, you know, more dramatic roles. So it was just somebody I had always considered for this role. Yeah. Simple as that. It was the Vine days that made me realize that he was six seconds uh, making me entertained in six seconds. I knew he was able to entertain me for two hours. And you explored sex work before in your movies. You mentioned Starlet, uh, a film that you had done previously. In Red Rocket, you take a look at themes like exploitation and coercion in sex work. But what I found interesting about the movie is the sex itself in the film, at least for the characters, it never seems like a source of violence. And I think that's another uh, comparison that, that goes into Lolita a bit, where you take this moral distance to what the characters are going through. You're detached from that. And at the heart of it, you kind of have to believe the romance. You have to buy it. I think any messed up romance movie from Vertigo to Badlands, you have to buy that that relationship is real. How did you achieve that in the chemistry? It, it's as simple as this. I 
didn't want to just paint a black and white big bad wolf and innocent little lamb. That would be right. so easy to do. And it's been done a million times, but we all know that life is more complex than that. And one of their big notes for me was that I should have the strawberry character have agency and, and actually, you know, intelligent and present and making her own decisions and enjoying the consensual sex they were having. Now she happens to be unknowingly being semi recruited mm-hmm. for the porn industry. And that's a whole, that makes it more complex, but on the surface level with her character, I just wanted to make her character a realistic teenager who is intrigued by this world. The balance the entire time that starts in the screenplay, mm. you know, uh, stage, but really, really solidifies in the edit. I'm also the editor. And so I consider that half of my directing work and really finding that balance in the edit is the most important thing. But also it's, it's also elements like I'm finding my Simon and Susie who had a great chemistry and who are two professionals and are able to really give a uh, multi-dimensional performance that just isn't a black and white performance. That's the last thing I wanted. Well, when we speak about your movies, uh, a lot of your characters, as you mentioned, they're a little bit marginalized from these formal economies. And your settings are so vital to that, right? And in Red Rocket, you do something very interesting where you put a historical setting to the film in the backdrop. It never hits you over the head, but it's there. Uh, that backdrop being the 2016 election, which, I, I mean, to me, it felt like an ensemble of hustlers willing to say anything to get our confidence just to advance their own careers, Right. And, uh, and like that election uh, in Red Rocket, that's how you feel about Mikey's con. Uh, he, it's about to collapse at any second, kind of like all of these candidates in that election. And he's willing to do anything and say anything to keep it going. Yeah. When did you work that into the story? Oh, um, well, it wasn't when we initially broke it. Because mm-hmm. when we initially broke Red Rocket, it was right after Florida Project. So it was at the time of that election. So it wasn't actually until later where I was able to see that election in hindsight. So it was actually applied when we decided to pivot and make Red Rocket. So that that March, April 2020 Mm -hmm. period. But yeah, I was playing with the theme or tackling the theme of division. I I see our country as extremely divided right now. And and as you just said, you know, you you articulated it wonderfully. Like I'm looking, I look back at that election as like the election that sort of started it. I mean, we've been divided for a while, obviously, but there was something that made it very public in which everything became politicized because that election itself was so much like a reality television show in which everyday people who normally wouldn't get involved with politics are suddenly glued to this, to the coverage of that election, because guess what? One of the candidates was a reality television star. So it really drew the public in and then suddenly became, everything became politicized. Like I can't even talk about COVID right now with friends because we might have a slight difference of opinion on something. And suddenly it's like, okay, you're now, I see you as somebody on the other side, you know? And I hate that. I really despise, I really don't like where our country has gone. But again, and I, so I didn't want to like preach to the choir either. I obviously lean left. So you can see that with all my films. But the last thing I wanted to do is make this more divisive vehicle out there. And so I was tackling this theme, but I wanted to do it in a way where it was ambiguous enough where both sides could discuss this film. Both sides could perhaps even apply their own politics to the film. That was important to me too. I've had people come up to me and say, is Simon supposed to be Trump or Clinton? I'm not sure. And that I love that. I love that because that means that I, I'm riding that line mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, again, is, 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 not, is not alienated. Right. 
And of course, this movie uh, talks about the adult entertainment industry, which has been at the forefront of every disruption when we talk about cinema, right? I mean, porn kept cinemas alive after the suburban flight, before there were enough multiplexes in the suburbs. They kept, they kept downtown cinemas alive and thriving for decades. They kept our publication, the trade magazine for movie theaters. They were our biggest advertiser and kept us alive for at least a decade. But right now, that business model seems to be broken by two things that theatrical distribution and exhibition seem to be talking about, right? Uh, the first one being uh, ubiquity in streaming platforms. The second one, breaking the price-value relationship, meaning there is an association of content that's everywhere, being free and easy to find. I can tell you, when I was 12 years old, finding a Playboy by the dumpster was like finding the Magna Carta. 12-year-olds today have no problem finding this content. Do you see any parallels between the adult industry after all the research you did and after this movie with where we are in theatrical distribution and exhibition today? Well, yes, we, we saw this happen with music. We saw this happen with the porn industry. Um, you, you give something to the public for free and suddenly it changes their entire relationship with that product. It's like they expect it to be free from that point on, uh, which is really sad. It's just setting up the wrong precedent. And I believe the day and date led to that. The streaming services are, are just continuing to, to, to perpetuate that. I personally, and I, this has nothing to do with, I, listen, I want art to be available to everybody, okay? But there's a way of rolling out a film in which by exposing it in stages to the public can elevate the film's importance. And that's a real thing. You can literally, I mean, that's part of marketing to make, to elevate the perception of it to the audience, to elevate it. So um, I've always been uh, a fan of the longest window possible before entertain home entertainment because I see, and this is where people slam me for being elitist or whatever, but I'm not saying they can't see it. I'm saying that uh, home entertainment for me is an afterthought. <laughs> I, I, as the creator of this film, I would like people to present it first and foremost on the big screen because that's the way we shot it. We want it to be seen in a theater with nice sound. And you can say, oh, but I have my home theater that has a big screen and good sound. Well, it's not just like that. It's, it's, it's actually making it an event and being in a room with strangers and this communal experience of experiencing the same piece of art with other people. And that does change the actual, the way that you absorb it, the way that you think about it, the way that you react to it. So I, I'm fine with that. And then slowly rolling it out and getting it. And, and also there, there, there's also the value of it can change. If you're paying for that, you know, premium experience of going to the theater, you pay a little bit more and then you wait, you know, wait a month and you're buying it on VOD and you pay, maybe pay a little bit less. And then you wait a few more months and you're eventually getting it for free down the line with your, you know, with your Netflix subscription. But I, I feel like that was the, that was always a model that worked and it worked because now what's happening is that films are sort of becoming series and series are becoming films and they're all becoming sort of like throwaway. They're like, literally people are just, they're no longer the, you know, not that I'm looking for recognition, but it's definitely throwing your tour, you know, uh, thing right out the window because we're seeing it just as uh, we just talk about Netflix movies. Now we don't hear who the directors are. We don't know who the actors are really, uh, you know, just Netflix film. Okay. I have the new one this month, this week, you know, and, and they're become it's, it's for me, it's stripping away the, the significance of this art form. So I know we, I could go on for a long time and I'm sorry. I'm all over the place with this, but I think you get where I'm 
where I'm coming from with this. And, uh, and I think it's a situation that uh, a lot of uh, people in the business that, that understand the value of making things accessible and advertising uh, understand that. Uh, the other question I have, and, and of course, you know, you, you're not here making these decisions on a day-to-day -day on, on releasing and distributing films, but as we see where the model is now for specialty films, for art house movies like yours, it looks like the platform release is in the background, and it looks like you guys are being given a three-week window to try to make as much money as possible instead of slowly finding and developing that audience in a model that had worked for decades and decades. Uh, does that place undue pressure for, for the type of films that you guys get get made under this new paradigm of three weeks and out? Uh, I think so. I think so. I think if you make a genre film, it's different. Mm. I think if you make an 824 genre film, which is like a slight art house horror, you know, like Midsommar or or It Comes at Night, or Lamb that falls into genre. That stuff you can throw out there because you know the audiences will come you know, to the multiplexes for that. For a film like mine, which is not fully genre, it's that more, it's that, it's that, you know, it's that old school dramedy thing. It's that old school, like just classic character study thing. The thing that we used to see all the time and now, you know, we don't see as much of. Um, that, I think, that is why I'm very happy actually that A24 is giving this a platform release, mm -hmm. which I think is, is the best way to roll out a film like this. Um, allow word of mouth to gain and to, you know, and, and if it, and if a film can, who knows if there are still sleepers, if sleepers can actually still exist. I think we're, we're learning that. But I mean, I just look not that far away from now when you see titles like Room from A24, a very difficult subject matter that A24, your distributor here with Red Rocket, grew to Academy Award nominations, what Neon did with Parasite, a Korean language title, by advertising and letting these films find their audience in movie theaters, like you say, maybe not everyone in every city at once, but eventually, yeah. if you want to see it in the theater, you can. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you. Of course, I'm, I'm coming with a, with a theatrical bias that uh, theatrical exhibition makes sense for specialty and art house films as much as it does for the big popcorn movies. I totally agree with you, 100%. <laughs> And uh, to close up our conversation, and thanks again for, for all the time you've, you've given us today, I wanted to talk about what it means to you to release a new film right now as we're coming out of a devastating pandemic for movie theaters, people that work at movie theaters, for movie theaters, with movie theaters, with the entire exhibition community, what it means for you as a filmmaker to have a film have a theatrical presence in part of the recovery. Well, I'm just incredibly grateful. I'm grateful that there are still theaters. I'm glad there are still people working at theaters and I'm glad there's still audiences wanting to see films in theaters. And I know that, you know, I've been going since like day one, the day they opened up, I forgot which film played. I, I went all the way out of Thousand Oaks to see the climb at an AMC, I think. So I've been actually back in it for a while, but I know some audiences aren't, have like, sometimes I get DMs saying, you know, I just, I saw your film at a film festival the other day. It was my first time back in the theater for a year and a half. And I'm just like, wow, this, you know, that's so nice. You took the time. Actually, I'm sure you had to battle your comfort level to get out to a theater, to put yourself in a theater. And the very fact that you're doing that, you know, for, for my film, that means so much. And thank you. And, and I just hope that um, the people who are back at theaters right now, they're loving film. And I feel, and there's that vibe that I get in the auditoriums when I'm there, that are, there's like people are truly you know, celebrating the thing that they, we almost lost. And it's that cliche where you, you, some, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And that certainly kicked in for me um, because now I'm going to the theater for 
everything. I see, I see every, I see things that I normally would not have seen in the past. And I'm talking like some of the big franchise stuff that perhaps isn't my thing. I can still, of course, appreciate it. But now I'm full in because I want to support the industry and, and every aspect of the industry. I want to support the art houses. I want to support the, you know, the chains and the, and studio films because, you know, ultimately we have to give them their due. They, the, the, the studios are, those big franchise films are the films that are keeping the theatrical business moving forward alive and striving. Thanks to Jesse Rifkin, Daniel Luria, and Sean Baker, director of Red Rocket. See that exclusively in theaters this weekend. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, The Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Please tune in next weekend for more on box office, the cinema industry, and uh, maybe a bad pun or two. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.